Welcome to the podcast of ideas. In mid-October at the Barbican in central London, we hosted the 14th of our annual Battle of Ideas festivals with 450 speakers on over 100 panels, attracting an audience of about three and a half thousand people across the weekend, all keen to explore, understand and debate the important issues of our day. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be uploading audio and video from these discussions, so watch out for new posts on this podcast and our YouTube channel. The following session is titled Advertising, All-Powerful or Overrated, in partnership with Diageo. The Battle of the Festival has been running well over a decade now, and as you can imagine, we've explored a lot of the themes around advertising in terms of body image, mental health, smoking, alcohol, obesity, a range of different ways of coming at this question. And while all those debates have um, always been good in terms of looking at that quite explicitly, I've always been a little bit frustrated with how they often turn into a debate about the particular thing that has been advertised, um, rather than the actual medium and industry of advertising itself. The two things I think are worth kind of really having, for me personally, the speakers may take it in their own um, uh, perspective is that is, it, is advertising a straightforward free speech issue or is it a very particular type of speech which needs very particular treatment and therefore what are those restrictions and the second big one I think is understanding the impact of the digital sp- sphere changing the principles behind the debate is there a difference between the kind of public square of the world of billboards and TV advertising and mass media between that and the kind of the digital realm with things directly into your uh, inbox, persuade, you know, all over your social media feeds using kind of data-driven techniques to put that there, which are maybe more advanced, maybe more sophisticated than they were in the past, maybe not. Um, to my far left, uh, we have Chris Snowden, who is the head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs, the editor of the Nanny State Index and author of numerous books and pamphlets, including Selfishness, Greed and Capitalism. To my uh, immediate left, I have Dan Mobley, who is, a global, who is the Global Corporate Relations Director of Diageo, the largest spirits manufacturer in the world and sponsors of this session. Um, for those of you who have been in the room all day, um, you know that this is Dan's third debate today, which is the power of advertising, because I always assumed that Diageo would be a really large company, but it turns out that Dan is largely the, the one doing everything. To my immediate right, we have Dr. Shirley Dent, who is a communications specialist, and like me, a former head of comms at the Academy of Ideas. But also importantly, she lectures in PR, and she has a PhD on the poet William Blake. So a kind of somebody who comes at a lot of communications from a lot of different perspectives. Um, to, my, to my far right, a, um, physically, not necessarily politically, is uh, Carl Miller, who is the founding research director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at the think tank Demos. He's also the author of the new book, The Death of the Gods, The New Global Power Grab, which looks explicitly at how power and influence is increasingly shaped through the online world. Carl is probably familiar to a lot of you. He's increasingly is you know, involved in trying to understand a lot of the techniques that have been used um, in the online world in terms of um, grabbing our attention and attempting to influence us. And last but by no means least, uh, we have Steve Soden, 
who is the director of Best Interests Limited and has worked on business strategy and new ventures for large global companies for many years. Uh, but I think most pertinently for uh, today, he originally graduated from Oxford with a degree uh, in uh, philosophy and psychology with a major in experimental psychology. And he went straight into business as a marketing executive, which I think brings into uh, focus some of the questions we're going to look at today. So I've asked him to speak for three to five minutes. And without much further ado, Chris. Yes, advertising is not something that economists have generally uh, been all that interested in. One economist, quite well-known one, uh, called Julian Simon, did decide to uh, dedicate a chunk of his life to researching and studying advertising, and he concluded that, and I quote, the economic study of advertising is not deserving of great attention. He also added, this is not a congenial point at which to arrive after spending several years working on the subject. But that is the bottom line, and the reason economists generally aren't very interested in it is that they understand that it doesn't really, generally speaking, change aggregate demand. It just apportions demand between different companies, and to an economist, it's not, that's not particularly interesting. And... There have been discussions, debates about uh, advertising over the years. The classical economists wondered whether it might be wasteful and various uh, things like that, whether it created monopolies or whether it helped break monopolies. Um, but generally speaking, they, they found that it was beneficial, certainly to, to the companies um, and also to consumers. Um, but the basic point that it doesn't affect aggregate demand for established products, obviously for new products it's bound to create uh, new demand, or it should do, um, but for established products it doesn't really change anything very much. That point is utterly contested by people who hate advertising or who hate particular products or activities um, they want the advertising banned for. At the moment, we've got a push on various different fronts of people trying to get different forms of advertising banned. Tobacco advertising was finally banned in 2003, to the great detriment of my favourite sport, snooker. Uh, but at the time, we were assured that this was a unique product and there's no slippery slope and so on. A couple of years ago, the EU banned all the cigarette advertising that it has the authority to ban. That You probably didn't even hear about that at the time. It was waved through very very quickly, didn't seem to be a very good argument for doing so, but it went. Gambling advertising now is under severe scrutiny, uh, may well be uh, banned entirely on television. Alcohol advertising is in the process of being banned on television in Ireland, a new law passed only last week, and so-called junk food advertising is going to be banned before the 9pm watershed. That includes things like this, and uh, things like this. It doesn't include things like this, but it does include uh, fresh orange juice. It includes peanuts. It includes raisins. It includes a huge variety of food. In effect, most of the food, actually, that is, in practice, advertised on television. And all to no end, you know, if the economic evidence is to be believed, it doesn't actually... Advertising doesn't make people fundamentally change their behaviour. It doesn't make people who don't drink start drinking. It doesn't make drinkers drink more. It just makes drinkers decide to pick Heineken or, or over Guinness or vice versa. It is a real problem. People don't like advertising very much because it gets in the way of the programs and some people find it rather tacky or boring or tedious and I, I understand that. Uh, on the other hand, it does provide us with all those free things. It does provide the programs that the advertising interrupts. It subsidizes all sorts of things in sports and culture and media. It, it sponsors you know, all those free newspapers that you pick up in the morning and the evening, that's all thanks to advertising. So although you may, may find it annoying, it is a necessary evil. It does help oil the wheels uh, of industry. It does allow you, the consumer, to know when there's a new product out, whether there's a, a product on discount. It helps competition. And uh, it would take a huge amount of money out of 
ITV and the other commercial stations if these kind of uh, bans uh, go ahead. Generally speaking, this is my, my final point, the campaign against advertising is nearly always a proxy for something else. Um, Selden and Harris, who founded the IEA in the 1950s, wrote a very good book about it uh, called Advertising in a Free Society, and in it they say that really when people are trying to attack adverts for higher purchase and things like that. that was, they were the targets in those days, but uh, tobacco even then. Um, they, they are attacking really the reflected image of the thing that they dislike. Um, either it's that or it's just general anti-consumerism, anti-capitalism. Owen Jones wrote an article uh, last week um, about how advertising is dreadful, but it was very clear that it was because he doesn't like capitalism itself, and advertising is the most visible (coughs) manifestation of of capitalism that pokes its way into the the eyes and the lives of people who don't particularly like it very much. We must defend advertising. It is, apart from anything else, a free speech issue, but it is actually very important, both for you as consumers and people like Dan um, as, um, as producers. I'm going to start with a quotation that I think gets to the heart of why a company like ours spends billions on various forms of marketing, Uh, and that's from a man called Rupert Guinness. He's the grandson of the founder, Arthur Guinness, a a brand that's 260 years old this year, um, one of our oldest brands. And he said, the quality of our advertising must equal the quality of our beer. And Rupert was onto something here because what he was driving at is his deep understanding of how you build a brand. And the reason that we market, the reason we advertise is to build our brands such that you choose them over competitor brands. That's why we market. It's building their reputation for quality. And ultimately, it's so you choose our brands over the competition. And that's something that makes me think that a lot of the debate around marketing is overrated. It's not some Svengali trick to convince you to do something that you don't otherwise want to do. Um, when we think about how we market our products, we think of drinking occasions. You know, you, many of you will, after the working day, want to pop into your local pub for an early evening drink before going home. That's one of the key occasions. Uh, and we advertise around, you know, why you might choose a Tanqueray and Tonic in that moment rather than one of our competitors' drinks. We cannot, no matter how much we spend, create a pouring whiskey over your cereal at 9 a.m. occasion. It's never, ever going to happen, and it would be wasted pounds were you to attempt to achieve it, even if it were uh, not otherwise deeply irresponsible. So advertising doesn't increase aggregate demand. I mean, this is what Chris has been saying. And if there are any truth in that argument, you know, I could sackle our marketeers and I could save the company billions of pounds because it's not working. Alcohol consumption in the UK and around the world per capita consumption is falling. It's been falling for decades. It's falling quite sharply. But we spend more on advertising. Collectively, alcohol produced in the UK have increased spend since 1990 by 400%, four times more spending on advertising. We're not doing it to drive consumption because if we were, it would be an epic and staggering failure and we would all be fired. We're doing it to drive the building of our brands and to make you choose us over the composition. You should also look across countries. Look at countries that have restricted or banned the marketing of our substance or indeed other substances you might want to to consider. And I know the alcohol industry best. Sweden has pretty much a total ban on all forms of advertising. Since 1990, per capita consumption in Sweden is up 25%. In the UK over that period, it's down 14%. And we permit marketing. It's not driving aggregate demand. It's about brand preference. 
Uh, and the same is true if you look at somewhere like France. France has much more restrictive laws around the marketing of alcohol than the UK. The so-called Loire Van, which is quite well known. I remember as a kid seeing my beloved Liverpool football team having to play with a blacked out shirt because in those days they were sponsored by Carlsberg when they played in France. They couldn't advertise. France, contrary to the, the myth of booze Britain, France has higher rates of underage drinking than the UK, binge drinking than the UK, and higher per capita consumption, considerably higher, although like the UK, it is falling. So again, the idea that more restrictions there are driving better drinking practices simply is not true. And last, it's already been alluded to, and I'll finish on this point, wherever Rupert Guinness is today, sadly he's no longer with us, uh, I fear he'll be spinning in his grave because very soon in Ireland, the home of, uh, of our beautiful product Guinness, it will soon be illegal to advertise most forms of alcohol in most venues. Um, and actually that means that the famous Guinness ad, the surfers, you remember turning into horses, a beautiful piece of work, would actually be an illegal in the country of the product's birth. Uh, I think uh, Rupert would find that deeply depressing. I certainly do, and it's not something that we should be extending to other countries. Shirley. I'm probably the worst, possibly the best speaker to have on this panel, because I'm a sucker, okay? Small objects of desire the shiny thing, the handbag, the snazzy new iPhone, I am there. And my argument is very simple, and it's about why that shouldn't matter and why actually, not just for me, but for society, it may be a good thing. And this is at the heart of that argument. Advertising is a form of advocacy. And advocacy, lest we forget, is critical to, is inherent in democracy. That is the freedom to persuade and to seduce. And the flip side, the freedom to be persuaded and to be seduced. It's about freedom of choice. And just to be clear about this, that's not the same. Advocacy is not the same as out-and-out lying or conning people, okay? But it's a form of advocacy. It's saying, I have something, I have an argument, propaganda, come on, have I persuaded you? I was reminded about the beautiful art of this seduction, of this advocacy, when I went into a pub with a colleague of mine near where I work, and it's a pub called the Edgar Wallace, and for some reason, its walls are bedecked from a bygone age of tobacco advertising. And some of it is just funny and witty and trying to get you all of these different brands, come on, choose me, you know, waits a good, honest smoke. You know, you can't say further than that. So that's the core of my argument. Lest you're not convinced yet, I want to bring in a ringer here, a not-so-hidden persuader, and his name is Edward Bernays. Does anybody, has anybody heard of Ed, Edward Bernays? Okay, so he is, as you know, sir, he's known as the father of PR, and there's much to disagree with in Bernays, and a lot I do disagree with. But there's also a lot to admire. I'm going to quote from Bernays in a minute, but Bernays, if we're looking at tobacco advertising, whatever you think about smoking or not, he did some really interesting things. And one of the things he did to persuade a very big market, women, to smoke in the 1920s and 30s was the Torches of Freedom campaign. And he linked it with the emancipation of women. And he got women in 1929 to march, smoking their cigarettes in the Fifth Avenue uh, Easter Parade as an act of 
emancipation and defiance and choice and freedom. Very, very, very clever marketing. Whatever you think about the rights and wrongs of smoking, right? But the land of the free, tortures of freedom, a, a beautiful moment. I'm just going to quote from his book, Propaganda. I disagree with a lot of where Bernays is coming from, but he's onto something in this because what he sees in mass marketing is something to do with democracy. And this is what he says. Anyone with sufficient influence can lead sections of the public, at least for a time and for a given purpose. Formerly, the rulers were leaders. They laid out the course of history by the simple process of doing what they wanted. And if nowadays the successors of the rulers, those whose positions of, or ability gives them power, can no longer do what they want without the approval of the masses, they find in propaganda a tool which is increasingly powerful in gaining that approval. Lots to disagree there with Bernays, but something interesting. And what he says is, therefore, propaganda is here to stay. It's not about feudalism, it's about democracy. Carl. Everyone else has a quote but me. I feel like I've uh, brought a a knife to a gunfight. Um, (laughs) So my my argument really is is quite different. Is, Is advertising all powerful? I'm not really that interested or know much about the effect of advertising on all of all of all of us as an audience. But I do know about the rise of the all-powerful advertisers. And I think that's an enormously important part of the story as well. So it basically begins like this. Around a decade, two decades ago, the way in which we consumed information obviously began to drastically change. And as we started to read more and more news and more and more content online, advertising started to undergo a, a, a kind of largely unstoried but enormously important shift towards what we call programmatic advertising. This was a completely different way of actually trying to get hold of you. Previously, if Diageo or anyone else wanted to say advertise in The Guardian, they would normally go to an advertising agency, they'd put together a campaign and go straight to The Guardian, buy space in it and probably elsewhere as well. Now, with programmatic advertising, we saw the rise of this whole new kind of online infrastructure of data, targeting, real-time ad exchanges, and, of course, the social media platforms themselves. Um, And as that began to happen, and as these um, ad tech industry kind of members began to tell a new story to advertisers, more and more and more advertising became programmatic. And as that happened, two companies consolidated the whole of the online advertising industry, Facebook and Google. Now... Uh, 95% of every pound, new pound, that is spent on online advertising goes to one of those two companies. About 30% of the pound now goes to the actual space where the attention is being held, be it the publisher or, uh, or newspaper or anyone else online. And that has seen, really, um, the rise of two of the largest technology companies in the world, both advertisers, who have now began to eat the world. So they began in advertising, and this actually advertising is the birth of all the new kinds of technologies, be it targeted, um, ad-driven, um, ways of trying to understand about you, um, a lot of artificial intelligence and, and, and advanced computational techniques, they all come out of advertising. But most importantly, these, te- these technology companies didn't stop there. Uh, and they began to move into industry after industry after industry, be it transport, be it health, um, and so on. So advertisers are becoming all-powerful. 
the, the, the advertising in the online world was a kind of crucible um, for where these where these companies were born. And now they are moving laterally across industry sector after industry, industry sector. Software is eating the world, I suppose, might be the quote I can throw in. Which really, I think, means that they are kind of garnering a kind of spectacular stack of both subtle and obvious powers. Everywhere from the ability to direct attention and, and to persuade, all the way through to enormous kind of brute financial uh, 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 kind of constellations of, uh, of wealth and brains. So that's my argument, a little bit different. One that I thought was really important to actually put into, into the landscape here as well, because kind of programmatic advertising is changing everything. It's changing the whole way in which all the producers of content can actually make money from their stuff and increasingly do not make money from their stuff. Um, and it's also given us um, the tech giants too. Um, and they are only at the very foothills, I think, of the projects which they are seeking to now embark upon. And Steve... Well, I'm here speaking as someone who spent a large part of my career uh, commissioning advertising, working with uh, healthcare products and Polaroid cameras and uh, products like that, nothing sinister. And, and for me, the, the, the question is uh, a little strange in that, for me, advertising is naturally a good thing because it helps you sell stuff. I mean, that's, that's what we in companies do. You're creating awareness of new products or you're protecting market share or hopefully gaining market share in an established market. That's what you're doing. Presenting the options to, 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 to the consumers. And without advertising, a lot of markets would become sclerotic. There would be no dynamism in them. In them. The other point I'd make about advertising, and I think we should not ignore it, is that it's actually very entertaining. I think the world without advertising would not be uh, as interesting and, and alive as a world with advertising. And there are some great great creative ads around, like the old Guinness ones, and some great people like Ridley Scott and Tony Scott cut their teeth on advertising before they went on to make movies. But, okay, so in general it's a good thing, but there are some questions that are raised about advertising, obviously, and one of them that um, was touched on earlier is, is when it relates to banning advertising of a particular category. And my view on that is similar, I think, to Chris, is that it's nothing to do with the advertising, it's to do with the product. Now, I... I, I think that having a small bet on a football match is quite a fun thing to do. It gives a bit of, you know, it gives a bit of emotion to the whole thing. What I don't appreciate is when you go onto a betting platform and then they take your profile and then they build an algorithm of how you're betting and then they lure you into casino betting, which is essentially like having a fixed odd terminal in your pocket, which can, where you can lose hundreds and thousands of pounds. So the actual advertising of who's going to score next in the, in the football game, I think, is great. But it's the behavior that follows it that I worry about. There used to be a saying that was uh, half of the advertising I do is wasted. But the problem is I don't know which half. That was uh, from uh, Ogilvy, I think. But the issue now is that it's actually a bit easier, particularly online. And this uh, picks up a point that uh, you can target advertising online so tightly now that it can only be seen by your target audience. Now, a, a friend of mine actually created his own his, his Facebook profile in such a way, and then he created a Facebook advertising campaign in such a way that he was the only person that received the ad. You, know, you can target down to that kind of level. And, and the outcome is that whilst in the old days you could see an ad because it went out into the general space and you know, people could object to it through the ASA and say, well, that's misleading or, it's, or whatever... Now, you don't see it unless you're the target. And so if you are placing the ad, you can place what would be a misleading ad, and you can actually 
you, you, you'll send it to people who you know will not object because you're reinforcing or, or uh, endorsing their views. So that is, is a potential risk. And obviously, you know, Brexit and Cambridge Analytica, you, you've heard those stories. The, the other thing that we've got to consider is this democratization of advertising now, um, the rise of online influencers and vloggers. You know, Generation Z don't read magazines. In fact, a lot of millennials don't read magazines. They browse Instagram and they watch YouTube instead of television. And, and so the people who are making the most influence are the, the vloggers and the, the people who are have big Instagram followers. I mean, at a high level, you've got Brooklyn Beckham, who's endorsing Burberry online. You know, all the way through the population of vloggers, there are people receiving monies from uh, people who are uh, wanting to promote their products, or they're promoting their own products. Now, the psychological harm that people attribute to advertising, in the old days, used to be about, you know, creating, playing on shame or guilt, you know, which often used to be the way of hygiene products, that they would, you know, that your best friend won't tell you if you've got BO, that kind of thing. And, and the other one is about body shaming. And then there's, a, you know, there's others about low self-esteem because you haven't got what I've got. And I think there's a big danger that the, the new generation of the vloggers and the, and, the, and the Instagram sharers can create a similar environment where psychological harm can be done. There's a book by uh, Jonathan Haidt called The Coddling of the American Mind, and they quote that in 2014 there was a sharp increase in uh, mental health issues and, um, uh, and suicides and, and, and self-harming amongst girls in the U.S., and that kind of coincides with the beginning of iPhone generation and com- Comparative social media. So the fact that everybody's advertising themselves is a dangerous thing, although it's not mainstream advertising that's the issue. I, th- I think that's good because I think that gives a kind of fair a, uh, assessment of a, where the debate's at, and I can already see some hands have gone up. So I am going to go straight out to the audience on this one. So I- got no problem with advertising persuading us, and uh, kind of like Shirley says, that's uh, you know a, kind of a good thing in a way because it's part of the. I guess, democracy to be able to do that, to make choices. But I think, I haven't heard this view yet from the panel, but it's really a question of what companies themselves are trying to do today, which is the real issue for me about advertising and its effect. Because if you talk to or look at the average company, they're probably less inclined to want to produce products, but more to have a more paternal role in our lives, shall we say, to make us behave and live well and to ultimately spend less, uh, to consume less energy, eat the right foods, and to, you know, to a degree in drinking as well, to kind of drink less, to kind of shape behaviour or to provide some, what they see as a kind of a moral good, shall we say, whether you like that or not. I think a lot of brands are really trying to step into that, that realm, perhaps because we have nowhere else to look to for that, that sort of guidance, if you will. But and I think that's when advertising and marketing, to me, gets into very odd uh, uh, kind of uh, position right now because you're now seeing that being used to shape behavior to even sometimes take away choices uh, that you think well actually surely you're about creating more choice and you're actually doing the opposite in terms of your marketing and brand awareness so I wonder if the panel can kind of comment on that because I, I do see it's a very changed circumstance that advertising is sort of being used for today feel like our panel is breaking up a bit to ask a couple of questions. I mean, one of my bugbears is the Advertising Standards Authority, who I think often aren't worthy of the name 
um, authority in the sense that the most recent example, and there are a litany of them over the last few years, is that you can't advertise bacon being better than avocados because obviously you want to stick by a healthy message. And uh, the Advertising Standards Agency also often take a minimal number of complaints in order to make maximal de- effective decisions that advertisers, so, you know, under the guise of self-regulation, um, go along with. Um, that ends up in a kind of policing of society that I think is a really empowered, quite a dangerous um, Machiavellian behavioural trend in society. And my other question is kind of around transparency. You know, Carl brought up the role of advertisers. Um, do you think it's important when advertising to be, as Shirley said, kind of offering choices to people to make people aware that they are being advertised to um, because that seems to be a kind of quite important element in how public space is used um, and the kind of impact that people see advertising have on their lives, thinking you know, particularly of the kind of uh, beach body ready ads on the tube. It's that kind of encapsulating public space, um, unavoidable element to advertising that I think can really irk people and that perhaps needs closer investigation. Hey there. First off, full disclosure, I do work in advertising. Um, So these questions are kind of influenced by that and also aren't necessarily in my favour. So the first question is, I'd like to hear the panel's thoughts on uh, Sadiq Khan's ban of um, advertising that reinforces gendered tropes. Um, And second of all, I'd like to hear your thoughts on pay-per-click advertising. That seems to have led pretty directly to uh, clickbait, which essentially is distorting journalism, favouring emotion-heavy, fact-light uh, journalism, and like I said, I work in advertising. I don't really want to kind of shit on my own doorstep, so to speak. Yeah. Chris, I don't know if you think I know what you're talking about. So I think, um, in terms of this, it's a general trend, isn't it, in the last few years for these really sort of lovey-dovey, woolly, philosophical adverts that seem to go on forever. Um, and it's also, you know, be the person you want to be. You can fulfill anything. You have to follow your door. This guy, you think, oh, what the fuck are these people selling? And it's Lloyd's Bank, isn't it, right at the end? What's, what's the connection? Uh, so, yeah, personally, I find that annoying. But, you know, I find a lot of advertising uh, annoying. In terms of the public space stuff, I, like, I really like the fact that there's advertising on the tube. It gives you something to read. Um, and uh, the beach body stuff, I thought, was a huge storm in a teacup, and people really need to pull themselves together um, over that particular thing. The clickbait stuff, I feel they're getting the same way. You know, so, you know, newspapers are writing stories that people want to read. You know, I don't see a problem with it. Maybe you might find it tacky or tawdry. Well, don't, don't click on it. Um, but I don't have a problem with that, with that kind of thing, particularly. People obviously quite like it, so... Uh, you know, let, let the market decide. Dan? Yeah, I mean, a lot of different questions in there. I mean, just first on the sort of programmatic approach and the sort of social media giants kind of controlling what you see. I mean, you know, cynically, if only, like, if only I could just decide that if I put this much money here, it would reach exactly this person uh, who really wanted to see what I want and had an interest in buying it. It doesn't quite work that way. And I think we're beginning to see a bit of a backlash around some of the more outrageous claims um, from some of the, the digital advertisers about what can and cannot be achieved. You know, a large number of the impressions that people are getting um, through social media are not going to people, you know, and so having Vladimir Putin's web crawlers reading adverts for our premium products isn't particularly helpful to anyone, um, and I think there's a lot of exaggeration in the, the reach that you can get through this. Also, there is no point, as I've already said, in us finding ways to target people who have no interest in buying what we buy. And actually, 
the level of sophistication around, you know, I've, I've, I mean, you're a good example. So you've Googled because you want to know something maybe medical about alcohol, but then you're shown an alcohol brand. Well, you're not going to buy a bottle of Johnny Walker as a result of that. So I've just wasted some money. So I think we need to be a little bit careful about some of the claims around kind of where advertising of the future is going. And we've seen problems, as have other big consumer goods companies, where we've paid for advertising and it's ended up appearing alongside content that we were horrified by and we had to pull those adverts very, very quickly because, again, there are exaggerated claims about who will see what um, through, through the process. Interestingly, Facebook now has a button you can press and more people should know about this. If you don't want to see alcohol advertising, you can just switch it off. And that's incredibly useful for me, actually, because I don't want people who have no interest or indeed are underage from seeing my advertising because they can't or shouldn't buy what I'm trying to, uh, trying to sell. The only other thing I would add would be more around the paternalism point and this kind of cause-led or purpose-led marketing. Um, and it's really interesting. I think where consumers are going, public is going, is it's got to be authentic. And if it's not authentic... It's just wasted money again. And if you're irritated by advertising and marketing, that's not going to encourage you to buy the product. So you think of the Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad, sort of catastrophic brand damage, I think, for them. And they had to pull that very, very quickly because it was so inauthentic to try, for those of you who haven't seen it, sort of hijacking the kind of Black Lives Matter uh, movement to try and sell um, sugary water. It's just not going to work. Um, and so for us, it's interesting. We do, do look to try and purpose through some of the marketing of some of our brands where it makes sense and where we believe it will be authentic. But you have to be very careful how you do it. I think an interesting lesson for us was around Bailey's, where it's a product that's predominantly drunk by women. Um, and as a result, a lot of the marketing in the past was around kind of female empowerment. And it just wasn't cutting through. Um, and what we really realized was because consumers just didn't believe that was authentic to the brand. Bailey's is a treat it's a fun, it's, it's liquid cake, yeah? And so kind of trying to pretend that it's a kind of form of empowerment isn't going to convince anyone. But when we focused on the treat-like nature and the occasional indulgence, you now go and see social media, it'll be on recipe sites, and it'll be playing into the sort of playfulness of ice cream and, and ice cream-like products. So it's got to be authentic, whereas something like Johnny Walker, there's been a strong kind of link to human progress and we've done a lot of advertising around that and saying kind of the keep walking motive, which has been hugely successful in driving preference around the world for Johnny Walker. So if it's authentic, I think there's a place for it. If it's inauthentic, it's painful and it's just a waste of money. There was an exposition post, Jones, who came into my work and gave a talk about many things. And, one, and we talked about audience. And one thing he said is, when you're standing here, your tendency as a PR, as people producing news stories, whatever it is, or advertising is to focus on the supply whereas actually you should focus on the demand who is the audience and I think a lot of these questions come down to and these panics come down to a nervousness and distrust of ourselves and the audience on the question about these kind of overly worthy moralistic elements that have come into advertising I think either from the supply side or the demand side advertising is not a moral operation it just isn't it's about trying to persuade you to buy something do something etc i don't and i think that has become confused for various re reasons we can go into um i am less nervous about social media about programmatic advertising because i think the opportunity it gives us is for audiences and suppliers to find themselves and I'll give you an example and warning cheap plug coming here nephew is a manga artist quite a good one as it happens and does anime 
and has developed his ABD Illustrates. He has a following on um, his YouTube channel of over 100K, and they get you in and they give you awards. And he's somebody who has sent stuff to advertise and to use on his channel. But to be honest, this is not... Nobody's self-harming. They're a bunch of nerds. He got 200,000 views of a speed paint of a Dungeons and Dragons get-together. I mean, for me, this is just, what are they doing? But this is an audience who have found each other, who like their speed tablets and, you know, will be honest about it. So I think we've got to be less concerned. On the clickbait um, element, I think, the, for me, Carl, I, I know that, and I, I used to work for a mobile phone regulator, and there were issues about people clicking on buttons, literal clickbait, and the advertisers, so-called, not saying, you click on that button, that's 20 quid, thank you, it's coming out of your phone bill. Right? That's just lying, that's conning people. But I know, with all of these logarithms, my point, Carl, is that 95p in the pound, they're wasting the money. I began to get, for a reason, because of certain things for a reason I had been Googling, I began to get adverts in my Facebook stream for funeral services. Unless they know something I don't, I, at this point in time, do not have need of that. They just got it completely wrong. And I think people, you, you can talk about fake news and all the rest of it. We don't live in a channel of automatons and this sort of automatic link into what's being fed into us. That's one feed into my life. I live in the real world. I can judge it in the round, 360 degrees. So for me, that joy of seduction and taking it or leaving it is part of it. So advertising is a very human thing, online or offline. Carl? Uh, I did actually uh, spend some time uh, interviewing uh, and, uh, and getting to know some fake news merchants in Kosovo. I don't have time to actually talk about that this time around, but someone give me another chance if you want to hear a bit more about Burim and what he was up to. Look, here, here are my concerns about, about online advertising. One, we don't know what is happening. Um, for all the reasons you mentioned around it being very, very directed and automated. At the moment, there's absolutely no enforceable regulatory regime of any kind for online advertising, which is at the moment making it possible for a series of nefarious actors that I wouldn't call advertisers using to use advertising for a series of geopolitical and other means. But, but overall, my concern is, 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 is how advertising is, is bouncing off journalism. So, so as, as programmatic advertising became more and more popular and as money began to drain out of journalism, we, we, we've seen basically the commercial rug pulled out, out of under the feet of news. Around a third of journalists have been laid off since, since 2000. We've had 140 local newspapers shut down. The big global titles rumble onwards, but underneath that it's been something of a bloodbath. And if you get a Fleet Street hack drunk, as I did for the book too they'll begin to complain about how much unbelievable pressure they are under now in order to write ten times more stories than they used to. And, and they will tell you that there are some people in the news industry, it's not the fault of advertisers, but, but this, is, this is the reality, that they, they are little more than kind of cut-and-paste merchants, and they receive a huge number of very easy, very quick-to-publish stories from PR wires, 
which essentially flies straight into the newspapers as, as a form of journalism, placed journalism. So, so journalism is getting a lot weaker right at the moment when advertising is becoming more powerful and, 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 and better funded than ever. And that is really blurring the lines. Um, so there's all the forms, there's all these forms of kind of um, content marketing, which are very difficult to tell from, from actual forms of journalism. Now, I've got no problem with advertising, but I really have a problem with journalism being undermined. I kind of, for me personally, I don't work in the advertising industry, it can rise and fall. I don't, I'm not really that bothered. But what I am bothered by is the health of our economy, the uh, health of our democracy, which can only be protected, at least in part, by journalists that have the time and the money to actually pursue the truth and to dig up kind of the, the, the corrupt public official or the mendacious and the, uh, and the underhand corporate kind of activity where it exists. And that's exactly the kind of activity which is, which is being undermined. Final point, one last blurred line, is that there is, there's, all this, there's a whole new aspect to this also, which isn't quite advertising in the sense of putting a message in front of you, but it's definitely part of the persuasion game. Um, and that is how the tech actually is built. Now, in everything that you use, Facebook, Twitter, all the different apps, they, they are all basically trying to become as addictive to you as possible. And that really means plucking the kind of strings of your deepest psychology, making you share stuff before you even really think about it, viral advertising, or making you swipe down on Twitter. That's an idea that's taken directly from a one-armed bandit in gambling. Um, and, and, and that's a problem for me as well. It, it isn't the persuasion game. It's actually a form of control before people, people aren't being persuaded. Their kind of rational cognitive capacities aren't being engaged at all. All those are my worries. Advertising, as I said, is, is fine to do many of the things it's doing, but, but it's how it is undermining both the rules and the abilities of, of institutions like journalism to actually do their job. That's what really concerns me. Okay, Shelley, just want to jump in on the PR thing. Yeah, I think this is actually, I think we should have a discussion about this because I think... I don't agree with Cole Obinger of Doom Miller entirely on this, but I think there's something very important happening in this. And anybody who was in the uh, session on media, uh, media question time that just happened, there was discussion exactly about what has happened to journalism and the lack of young journalists doing their apprenticeship on the local press, really learning how to do that. There was young, very capable, well-knowing journalists, young journalists on that panel who said... I look at my older colleagues, I did, and I regret that I did not have that opportunity to learn the reporting skills. And it is changed. I do want to stick up for some of the newswires. A lot of the newswires, the big ones like PA, actually have very, very good, pretty neutral reporting standards. In some ways, they're more neutral than going to a, um, one of the, the uh, broadsheet papers. However, there are smaller wires which I have dealt with where you do find that there's a big blurring, and I work on the PR side of things, but there is a blurring between them, what they put out being PR and what they put out being journalism. And I'm, I'm not kidding you. I've sometimes worked with people where they don't know the difference. I work in PR. I work in political PR. My job is to persuade journalists that I, my researchers, my institution have something of importance to say, a story or a point of view that they need to include in their reporting. If they're a good reporter, they are going to hold that in the balance. They're going to use their expertise and, expertise and judgment to make a call about whether that goes in or out. My job as a PR is to advocate, okay? I think the problem comes when the PR and the journalism 
begin to slide over. That's a really dangerous moment. So I think you're onto something, Carl, but I would still say I do think we've got to trust people's judgment about the news they read, about the information in the world. We have to trust people or game over. Okay, Steve, and then I'll go. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, I, I was with a corporation called Polaroid, um, which was totally destroyed by technology, um, as I fear the, the old model of news gathering has been destroyed by technology. And, and what has got to happen is we've got somehow a new business model has got to evolve because the old business model was funded by advertising, and advertising has now migrated somewhere else. So it's kind of a, it's not. A, a happy situation, but it's a, it's a reality. So I think it, it, we just need to kind of reflect on that. I do agree with you, Carl, a lot on the way that the tech companies exploit um, psychology, and they've got some very, very bright people looking at some very, very big sets of data, working out exactly what works and looking for minimal improvements that build and build and build and so that they, they, can, they can exploit you. Um, uh, as an anecdote, a friend of mine was on a, a gambling site um, where he started off betting on horse races. They hooked him into the online casino. In three minutes, he lost £14,000 um, be, be, because they know exactly how to push the buttons to make you go again, to make you go again. So you're talking about very advanced PhD guys under, and studying huge amounts of data, crunching it down, knowing exactly what button, what noise, everything. And, and the only defense, really, for all of us is to know ourselves well enough to be able to resist it. That's, that's the only way that we can do it. We can't, we can't expect them to stop doing it because they're driven by a commercial uh, imperative. Going back to the first question, which was about some of this advertising, which looks a bit vague, and, and back to, to um, Chris's point about that Lloyd's ad. You know, I've always felt in my career that you have to remember that advertising people are selling you advertising. So when you're a, a brand, you know, you have to realize that the guys from the ad agency are selling you advertising. So I, I would take my hat off to the advertising agency and the creative team who sold that ad to Lloyd's Bank because they probably had a lot of fun making it and got a lot of kudos and awards for it somewhere, but I don't think it made any difference to the, to the brand itself. Can I say very, very quickly on this, because we're probably not going to disagree very much on advertising itself, so we might as well try and exploit the divisions that might be opening up. Uh, I think the problem, I say this as somebody who used to work in newspapers doing the digital media, I think that the problem for newspapers is not advertising per se, it's giving away all your content for free. If that's going to be your business model, to give everything away for free, don't be surprised when people stop uh, buying the newspaper. And on this thing about exploiting people's psychology and all that, there really is a very fine line between exploiting people's psychology using all these tricks and just making something that's enjoyable to the user. I don't really actually see where the distinction is. It just sounds more sinister if you put it in terms of exploiting people's cognition. They, they, they're this, making... they, they make that distinction themselves. I mean, they, they, this is like addiction studies. Re, re, read any of the stuff that's coming out of the tech giants, like their own internal white papers. This is, you know, dopamine studies, behavioral psychology... Right. Right. But that's, that's still just people enjoying themselves. You're just making something. They like it. They do it, and they do it more because they like it. I'm not against people designing things in a way that people enjoy. Hi there. Um, another admission. I, I do work in advertising, so I am guilty. Um, but um, I think it's very interesting um, what, what the man at the end said, and I, I really um, support his view. Um, and I think it's particularly important at the moment because we, most of us in this room, have got one foot in the digital world, but we remember a time when there wasn't digital. When we were at school, we were completely analog. Anyone, I'm 32, so I'm not that old, 
but there is increasingly a new generation who are far more susceptible um, to the digital world than we are and do not have a mind that's trained to recognise the digital influence versus the analogue influence. Um, and what is the answer to that? Uh, so earlier, Shirley uh, mentioned how advertisement was never moral, and I uh, just wanted to ask the what does the panel have to say about uh, the Colin Kaepernick advertisement with Nike? So another confession, I also work in advertising, specifically programmatic advertising. It's never It's a bit of true. Maybe we all work in advertising. Yeah, I think uh, I'd be interested to hear a little bit about the panel's thoughts on, on regulation. We had a little, I was having a little bit of a discussion in this in the, in the debate yesterday, but... Uh, I guess, and just on, on the point that the, the bodies that exist in advertising aren't that effective at regulating, and actually maybe, Carl, you mentioned that there's not really that much in terms of regulation. I'd, I'd, I'd go against that and say GDPR is, is a, was a form of regulation, and all that's really served to do is cement Google's power and Facebook's power. Um, I don't know whether anyone on the panel has any thoughts on what we should be looking to do um, to try and regulate, if at all, these companies. Um, and just an extra on that, I think uh, there's, a, there's a funny term used in the industry, which you've probably heard of, walled gardens. Um, and I think it's a rather sort of um, jovial way of, of saying inscrutable. Uh, and I work alongside Google and Facebook every day, and I think what's sort of dangerous um, about what they do uh, potentially is the fact that there's the inability to scrutinise what they're, what they're saying to you and, um, you know, telling advertisers like the likes of Diageo that your advertising is having X amount of benefit on the consumer, X amount of this, and forcing, you know, spend and sort of, yeah, tampering with consumer behaviour and, and forcing us to make incorrect advertising and bad advertising decisions. It was interesting uh, to hear your thoughts at the start about the kind of positive merits of advertising, where it can be artistic, where it can be thoughtful. Um, however, I think it took a while to actually get to the worry that a lot of people have about advertising being potentially exploitative, um, particularly as the lady over there mentioned, if um, for younger viewers, younger consumers who might be more susceptible to it. So um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on, for example, the kind of advertising that is aimed at teenage girls, for example, and how that kind of engenders that kind of psychological harm of, you mentioned the body shaming, the self-esteem, the kind of relationship... Um, the way that it affects all of these things in the ways that are really quite unhealthy. Um, so I didn't. I wanted to hear your thoughts on that because I think that is actually not so much an issue of the past, but still very pertinent. Okay, on the Colin Kaepernick uh, question that was directly to me, are not Nike really, really smart? Edward Bernays would be admiring them. You know, it's not a moral choice. They've picked up that what he did, the protest, had a certain resonance with a key, and beyond that, a key demographic, that, you know, it's a very, very smart choice that they've made there. Give you an example. I've got a very dear friend who said, loves American football, saw that they'd sponsored Colin Kaepernick, straight into the Nike store in Oxford Street. I came with him. I got a sort of Jordan, the, the one with the Paris thing on it. You know, I got something out of it. I'm a sucker. We went in there. It's a very, very smart move. They understood the audience, right? Make no mistake, it's not a moral choice. They've been very, very smart about it. I'm glad they've done it. 
but it was a smart choice. I just one thing I want to add into it. I think we've got to be very careful. Two things: the digital world is not a separate world, right? It is a human-made thing. It is part of a society, right? It's not like this dark hole that everybody sort of drifts off into and. You know, they're seduced and terrible things happen in it. It is part of the world it interacts with the world. And I'm a little bit nervous of saying there are these young people who are going to be... They don't know. They are going to be seduced. I think they're probably more savvy than I am about it. And if they're very young, there is a force that protects them. That force is parents. Okay. Parents don't, you know, have control and judgment over what their children do, and we shouldn't forget that. I am less actually concerned about young people, to be honest. I think they're navigating through this, and they could probably teach me a thing or two. They are not daft. They live in the real world, and the digital world is part of the discussion in the real world. Final thing on that. Where I work, we had the leader of Congress, Indian Congress, come in, and his team, one of his team said... They've got elections coming up in India, and they said the election is going to be won or lost on mobile. It's part, it is there, it's part of the political discussion and political propaganda out there, and people are aware of it. First of all, you can only sell stuff to people that they actually want. And so the, the digital piece is really interesting because the advertisers and digital giants include advertisers, they're trying to sell to media buyers, yeah, they're trying to persuade us to go to them. And, you know, to some degree they can have success in that. But I, I think some of the hyperbole around the social media giants is overrated. In many countries around the world, the best return on our investment, and we're pretty good at measuring this, is for much more conventional media. So TV buying, TV adversaries, you want to build a brand, build brand preference, get people to know about your brand and choose yours over the competition. TV is still great. And we still put more money through TV than we do through, through social media. Um, and it's not surprising that, therefore, some of the advertisers try and exaggerate the value of their product and try and tell you that they have this incredible ability. I think a couple of audience members raised this to, to get to you know, uh, individuals in one street who particularly want to see your ad. And it's, it's, I think it's somewhat overblown. The next one on the CSR point. Consumers are also changing in what they want. And I think this point around millennials and next generation being quite savvy is important. Um, they're, they're not children um, who kind of are uh, mindless and are sort of being led in a particular direction. We're responding to their wants and preferences. And you really see that in the alcohol industry, which is, you know, as I said, somewhere between one in four and one in five young people doesn't drink anymore. Um, and so there's real appetite actually for more adult, uh, non-alcoholic experiences. But also even those that do drink are looking for an experience. They'll spend in many cases a lot more, but on a lot less alcohol, so long as the experience is rewarding enough for them. And the industry is trying to move to premiumize our products and premiumize the experience we can provide to meet that, uh, that demand. So it's about the experience and the quality not just kind of volume and, and materialism. And I think you see that in other consumer goods. Big shift in this generation around a desire for stuff. Actually, they're much more interested in experience. And I think industries that are booming off the back of that are the ones that have, have realized it. And the last point I'd make on this sort of what people actually want, and it goes back to the Copernic example. Um, I'd use the example from our portfolio of Smirnoff, the, the vodka. Smirnoff has a disproportionately high LGBTQ uh, consumer base um, for a variety of reasons LGBTQ people tend to consume vodka more than they would consume other types of alcohols in many situations we do a lot of marketing through festivals a lot of marketing aimed at that and, and a, 
I, I've no, I have literally no idea. Literally no idea. It just happened. Like I say, so you can't. I can't make someone want to drink vodka over gin or anything else. Yeah. So I can just lay out the options for them. But I do want to respond to that consumer base. You'll see a lot of our marketing around Smirnoff is around promoting equality, diversity, uh, messages around inclusion. And we ran a great campaign in the U.S. recently around Smirnoff when uh, when the president was uh, being asked some interesting questions around Russian influence where we did um, uh, Smirnoff. Our, our roots lie in, in Russia, but made in America, but we'd be happy to explain that under oath. And that advertising campaign went very, very viral, very popular, and because the consumer base for that particular vodka sort of agreed with the kind of teasing politics of that. But you couldn't actually make consumers into kind of anti-Trump people or pro-Hillary people as a result of, yeah. of an ad campaign of that nature. I think some of the choice architecture stuff is kind of fascinating, and they are, they are investing huge amounts in trying to encourage people into doing certain things, following on for the kind of gambling and casinos thing. But I think what's interesting is obviously they have to invest so much because people wise up to it very quickly. You can get you get gamified, but then you're like, okay, I understand what they're doing. So they have to keep refreshing that game. And that's part of the kind of battle people always have for our attention. But obviously what does happen on a health level is those people who are uh, more inclined to develop problems around these things, there's always a sort of a group of people, a sort of 5 to 10% who develop these problems. Obviously they find that lethal. So all of these kind of tricks that are really aimed at trying to get us sort of 90% reluctant consumers start to create real problems for that 10%. It's actually some of the issue here is more about kind of risk rather than it being everyone is in the same boat. So is that me dismissing that? Chris, you seem like you were shaking well, your head. I'd, yeah, they, they, they would do it anyway. I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's 5% is just about right, not just for alcohol and alcoholism, um, drugs and drug addiction, and uh, for gambling, it's, it's actually a lot less. It's less than 1% uh, with, with problem gambling. Um, but they, yeah, they, they do it more or less at that rate all around the world, anywhere where these things are available, and in some places where they're not available. There's a very high rate of problem gambling in China, where all gambling is banned apart from a lottery. Um, that you're not protecting these people by interfering with, with the pleasure of the, the vast majority of, uh, of people. And we had all this kind of stuff, really, in the 50s with um, the hidden persuaders and all this, oh, it's subliminal advertising. It turned out there was never, there's never been any subliminal advertising. It was all bollocks from, from day one. And the stuff that was actually in the book was really, really uh, banal and mundane. I think it probably seemed at the time. It certainly seems if you read it now. Um, can I just answer the question about tech giants, because this could be where me and Carl really fall out. Um, don't regulate them at all. Leave them alone and leave the internet alone. The only thing we need to do on the internet is get rid of the paedophilia and maybe some ISIS videos. We do not need to be doing anything else. I think a lot of the hysteria about the so-called tech giants is the old media lobbying against the new media um, for, for its own ends. It's working fine as it is. There is not a problem. Twitter, I love Twitter to use it all the time. They can tinker with it as much as they want to release more dopamine in my mind. I'm absolutely happy with that. Don't use Facebook particularly because I don't want to keep in touch with people, but lots of people do and it seems to work fine. I like the targeted advertising. It's much more efficient. I'd rather see an advert that's of interest to me than something that's not of interest to me. And Google works fine. It's a perfectly good search engine. Again, the SEO uh, ads are great. All this stuff and the internet in general has worked brilliantly without any regulation. Now we're starting to see it. These bloody egg cookies on every website you ever go onto for no reason whatsoever thanks to the bastard EU. Leave it alone. It doesn't need anything doing with it. I, don't, I have read the book um, that, that, that Steve mentions. I warmly commend it to you. Fantastic book, Coddling in the American Mind. Uh, and I, I, I do find their arguments persuasive about young people. I personally don't want my daughter using a mobile phone at all until she's about 13. Uh, but that's not because of mad, unregulated content. It's for the reasons I explained. You know, people share 
um, you know, photos and there's pressure and the fear of missing out and all that kind of stuff. No one's talking seriously about regulating that kind of stuff anyway, right? Um, so yeah, age restrictions, you know, from a, from a parent's point of view, these guys should not be held responsible for the stuff that's published on their websites. They should never have got rid of Alex Jones or Tommy Robinson or certainly Lisa Grace, all these people. They should just leave it alone. Okay, I know Carl's going to disagree, so I'm going to let Steve go first <laughs> so he has a chance to get in and Carl can respond. Uh, then I'll right. go back out and I, I do remember the people who had their hands up earlier, so we'll yeah, go let, to you first. Let's do the, um, the, the, the generation. I, I, the, the, in 2004, Facebook arrived and in 2008, the iPhone arrived. <clears throat> so, you know, in about 2011, if you were in an, an advanced Western country and you were aged 11, you probably had a, 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 an online presence on, with you all the time, all day long. And that generation's grown up with it and they're learning how to use it in their own way. I don't think we will ever, we, most of us here, will ever understand quite what it's like to be them. They, you know, they, they describe the technology as an extension of themselves. You know, the fact that they can talk to anybody, find out things anywhere, anytime, means that they are going to be completely different. I, I'm not sure that we're seeing a continuation of the past. Beyond them, I think we might see a step change into a different type of future because they're just going to all, they're, they're going to be growing up connected with each other and they're going to have different um, outlooks and that's why we see things like dropping off of drinking, dropping off of teenage pregnancy, dropping off of teenage crime. It seems that there's a, a shift going on. We'll, we'll find out in 10 years' time what happens. I wouldn't worry about them. They'll work it out. Yeah. They will work it out. And they'll work it out better than we ever will. Um, the only thing I would say on, on gambling... Having run an online gambling company, I do know that there are people, people do get addicted to gambling, and if they don't get the opportunity to gamble, they won't get addicted. And if they are addicted, they need protecting from themselves, because it's awful to see what happens to them when they, when they compulsively spend all of their household money and can't, you know, can't, can't afford anything. So I, I do think on, on gambling, you have to restrict gambling companies to stop people getting to that point of addiction. Yeah, I mean, of course, of course, I massively disagree with the idea we shouldn't regulate internet companies or the internet. Um, I, I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm going to resist every fibre of my being which is urging me to, to leap back at you on that one, um, and instead actually use use this use this moment just to throw throw out something else in order to keep keep the debate moving forwards. Um, one, one of the places I, I went for in the book was this army base surrounded by kind of gentle rolling green hills in Berkshire. Um, and, and when I was on there, I, I was visiting the, um, the new information warfare brigade for the British Army. Um, just a few years old now, um, it exists because of a very new and incredibly important another shift which is happening, which is that information and advertising are being militarised. Essentially, military after military around the world, um, and this is all open, you can, you can read the new doctrines um, that each military publishes, which is essentially their problem-solving guide for how to fight wars. Um, they've all gone through basically the same line of thinking, which, which basically goes, warfare is a product of society, to society is fundamentally changing, we now live in the information age, how does warfare therefore change? Well, um, we need to put information at the very heart of what warfare is. And they've kind of conceptually expanded the idea of warfare then to, to, to stretch all the way from um, the kind of muddy battlefield all the way to blogs and social media platforms and, 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 and the watching public. 
Um, deception's always been part of warfare, but I think this is probably the first time that a military conceptually regards that a, a victory can be won like almost exclusively or at least primarily through attitudinal behavioural shifts rather than anything kinetic. Militaries around the world, both liberal democratic and autocratic, have essentially looked for ways in which they can now perpetrate information warfare. And the tools of advertising, they've reached into the kind of the, the spammy, illicit world of advertising, you know, um, gaming online reputation systems, spam itself, the, the construction of fake crowds. This all kind of was an illicit commercial offering anyway, the kind of disinformation on demand sector that's been around for probably about 10 or 15 years, longer if you're going to go for spam. And they've began to take on those techniques and they've began to build capability. Um, Steve, I really support what you say about how the younger generations will figure it out for themselves. Absolutely with you there. I'm a futurist for a living, so I'm quite interested in sort of uh, where the world's going. Um, so I'm just going to share something and then ask a question. So one of my friends, she's a space lawyer and um, she's exploring with one of the massive uh, logistics companies at the moment whether or not they can spend their entire annual budget on being one of the first companies to advertise in space. So that's something that I think we should look out for. And really, I think it's we're on a tipping point also of new forms of advertising. So if you look at sort of the explosion in augmented and virtual reality, then that opens up completely new mediums with which advertisers need to grapple. Uh, but the question that I wanted to ask, and perhaps this is one for Carl, I'm working with a client at the moment to explore the viability of using neural interfaces for marketing messages. That's set to gain a lot of traction in the next sort of three to seven, maybe ten years. Um, incidentally, just to uh, give some context to that, uh, 12 days ago uh, it was reported in, I think, Nature magazine that um, three people had been wired together to play a game of Tetris with their minds. So it is, it is here. So my question is, have Carl especially, have you explored this and do you have any views on the ethics surrounding it? So let's say, um, Carl, I think he provides a really interesting uh, counterpoint to this, but uh, on the idea of advertising warfare, they've, they've always been intertwined. You know, uh, Kitchener's famous I Want You picture was immediately used by advertisers around the world afterwards. The people who were responsible for the creation of that poster were picked up by firms directly afterwards. So I don't see the development of um, uh, militaries and their integration of advertising technology now as anything new. It's, it's, ever, it's been ever thus. Uh, you've been speaking a lot about banning advertising and whether that's a good thing or not, but I wonder whether you think it's more important that there's freedom in the market or whether we should continue down the slippery slope of banning things. I mean, tobacco is being banned in advertising. You're talking about banning gambling. Uh, where does that stop? Alcohol next? Chocolate's bad for you. Why don't we ban that? You know, how far do we go with censorship and how far do we leave things to freedom? Good. Okay, that means I think you can... There are a couple of specific things that you may want to pick up on. The, 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 prob the, the, the difference is definitional. So, of course, militaries have always used advertising to recruit, to try and change the enemy's picture of a war, etc., etc. And this is kind of their words, not mine. They've all, they, they all view themselves as going through a big shift now because they think that information is a space of war, not just used by war. So they think the fight is happening in information too. 
and that it can be won or lost with information and maybe with information alone. So I think that is, if you read Integrated Action, which is the, U, the, the UK's new doctrine, you'll see that idea come out quite clearly. I think that's, that, that's the shift um, for me, is, 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 uh, is, is that it, it is a new space where the fight actually happens. Um, yeah, kind of like neural laces. Um, my, my only, it's a really good idea. Um, we, we're beginning to look at it a little bit ourselves. Um, I, I, I suppose my, my only kind of very tentative thought there is that I, I think that one of the things that is not keeping up with tech generally are ethical frameworks. Um, it tends to be kind of the squishy, softer, so, um, slower to develop things like the law or ethics or public scrutiny. They seem to be the things that are simply not at the moment able to keep up with the absolutely hot, white heat of technological progression. Um, so I, 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 the, the ethics is obviously going to be important. It will become more important as information becomes more immersive and therefore consequentially likely more influential. Um, but, um, but, but beyond that, to be honest, I, I absolutely have no idea at the moment. Just quickly, I, I don't know much about neural networking, to be honest. I mean, alcohol has been melding minds together for 10,000 years. But um, on technology within in, in this space, it is very interesting to us. And, and we've actually we own a tech incubator that's looking to invest in different forms of technology to solve problems that we find, like how to get to the consumer more easily in places where actually shop networks, distribution networks don't work very well. I was in India recently looking at precisely should we buy a company that would use mobile technology that allow us to make... If you've ever been to an alcohol shop in India, it's not a very welcoming place. Um, so, you know, there might be a way through to, to... So tech is very interesting as a route to consumer rather than to kind of just increase volume. I would say we won't have time to discuss it. If you haven't looked at esports. That is a fascinating world that I think is going to revolutionize advertising. The scale of what's happening in esports, particularly in Asia, is fascinating. So I assume that we wouldn't be interested because it would be about kids. Um, but actually, the vast majority of e-gamers, e-sports people are, are well above legal purchasing age 25 plus, and they have huge disposable income. And these are people who are gathering in their millions, both in person and virtually, to watch people play computer games. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing, but it's Google it. The scale of it and the speed of change is extraordinary. We are using a bit of artificial intelligence at the moment, but it's mainly around responsible drinking work. So we're trying to create artificial intelligent programs where we have created them that show you the consequences of poor choices when it comes to drinking in a very graphic and, and visceral way which has proven effective in terms of behavioral change on banning stuff i mean and particularly alcohol marketing and i mentioned already there's lots of countries that ban alcohol marketing some of them are quite similar to the uk see who has the lower rate of alcohol harm um, so ireland at the moment is taking a very draconian approach let's see in 10 years time whether ireland has lower or higher rates of problematic alcohol use i think that would be a good experiment to see i know where i think that will come out on plain packaging um, similar point alcohol consumption is falling in pretty much every rich country everywhere for a variety of complex reasons we continue to make very significant profits. The reason why is we're not a volume player. We're trying to get you to buy better experiences, better quality, more expensive, higher margin products. If you force us down the plain packaging route, we won't be able to do that. We will only be able to compete on price. We cannot convince you to buy Johnny Walker Blue Label at £180 a bottle because of the quality of the experience that's in that and the craft that goes into making that product you know, if, if it looks and feels exactly the same as a bottle of Red Label at £13. You know, to get that differentiation, can't do it plain packaging. If you just want us to compete on price, then we do become a volume player, and I don't think that's a good social outcome. And then on the just the, the regulation point more generally, um, 
I'd just love to find a mechanism whereby we can just review, is stuff working? So I gave this example in one of my other earlier panels. I spent quite a lot of time earlier this year having a debate around Captain Morgan rum and uh, whether or not we should be allowed to use Captain Morgan to advertise our products because is he a pirate or a historical figure? Because apparently if he wasn't a, a historical figure, if he was just a cartoon pirate, that would be appealing to young people. But if he was a real person, that wouldn't be appealing to them. And actually, thankfully, he was a real person. He was a very nasty person who went around the Caribbean kind of raping and pillaging several hundred years ago. But that turned out to be fine. Someone needs to just take a good, <laughs> good look at some of this kind of plethora of regulation and work out. There is a, real, a role for regulation of advertising. I don't believe in complete you know, anarchy here, but work out and review. And then when it doesn't work, when it fails, don't just layer more on top. Stand back and take examples from around the world that do work and use those. Right. Well, I, my standpoint is that you shouldn't ban anything in terms of, uh, of advertising, but you should regulate some industries. And you've got to look at the bigger picture and say, what kind of society are we looking to um, uh, create? And we don't want a society full of alcoholics or, or drug takers or gambling addicts or, or, or people who behave uh, irresponsibly. So we have to moderate light touch um, some of the areas in, in order to, to achieve that. Um, I, the futurology, I've never heard of neural uh, networking, but I think that in, in general, I think the future will be very different from, from the past. I think it's, we are going through a step change. And I've, all the advertising, advertising has worked so far, and we're just going to have to be very thoughtful about the way that we look at it and the way we integrate it into our lives in the future. But in general, I must say, I'm a big optimist on, on all of these areas. Uh, I'll conclude with the conclusion of my book to save you all the bother of having to actually read it, um, which, is, which is that advertising is actually a really good example of, of, of something which, as it moves online, kind of breaks out of all of the different cages which we tried to try to build around power. We've always tried to control power and its ability to reach in and influence our lives. And the cages that we build can be legal, they can be regulatory, they can be um, professional standards, they can, as I said, public scrutiny before. All these different things are used to try and civilise what can be a very abusive thing, power. Um, and and my, my great worry is that online advertising in the forms that I see it in be that um, as, a, as a tool of a military or be that as um, something which we can't see, um, all, the, all the new ways in which it's using, all the new technologies which, which, um, which it has at its disposal, um, kind of breaks out of that uh, and, and is being used in very good ways and incredibly bad ways in equal measure, um, both being used to help and being used to damage. And I suppose like kind of my, my, my final thought, and, and maybe I am like a, isolated as a kind of pro-regulatory voice in this panel, or at least quasi, is that I think we desperately, desperately need to rebuild um, cages for power in its new forms now. Um, we need to find new ways of making morals and ethics matter and, 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 and adapt as fast as the technology. And we, we, we desperately need to find new ways of making actually the law as well as regulation um, fit for the 21st century. Because because the, the, the way the, the way it's, it's happening online at the moment, this isn't a case of regulation maybe being overweening. There's almost nothing on there which is which is actually um, constraining behaviour at all. So new cages desperately needed, and it's it's going to be a generational problem. But that's what we desperately need. Okay, um, I'm just going to touch on information wars. I don't want to stay too long on it because I think it's a fascinating future discussion. There is a school of thought that says information wars and people, uh, the states engaged in it, for example, notoriously Russia, this is not particularly my school of thought necessarily, but there's a school of thought that says that is happening 
Because actually, it's not because Putin is 10 feet tall. It's actually because Russia is actually a weak state and because the kinetic capability, you may be not be able to win that. I'm just putting that out there. So we're saying the information wars are happening in, ETH, you know, this is happening now and they're coming to get you online. It may actually be a sign of weakness that we're engaging in this rather than militarily speaking than something else. I don't think advertising should not be regulated, but I think it's what you regulate. I think it should be there if people are out and out scamming consumers, if they're saying, give me two million quid and this will happen and it's a lie, I think that should be regulated, actually. If it's out and out lying to consumers and stealing money of consumers, regulate it. But that is the line for me. I don't think we've got the right to make moral judgments about what business does. Um, that is business, right? That business is there to sell you stuff. For me, I think I like advertising. I would end on saying there is something wonderfully human about the way we engage in advertising. I know that Carl is concerned about putting cages around power, but I don't think we should forget us as individuals have power too. It's our own volition. We are capable of making choices about the information in the world around us. We live in the real world. Vodka gets you drunk? That's true. I'm not necessarily going to go and, you know, down a bottle of vodka. But I might enjoy that drink. And actually, it's a great line and it's an inventive line. And we've heard lots of examples about some wonderful human creativity in advertising. And I want that to remain. Uh, go back to that Rupert Guinness. You know, the quality of your advertising has to match the quality of your product. But if your product doesn't have quality, no ma amount of advertising will just drive consumers towards your, your brands. And when you look at people who want to regulate and restrict and particularly ban marketing, just question the motivation. This has already been touched on before. Um, because as I say, we market, and I think most companies market to drive that brand preference. Uh, if it's just to kind of create demand, it would be, uh, it would be failing. Um, we won't be able to do that. We won't be able to encourage that premiumization um, if we're restricted from marketing. And I think a lot of the people who want to over-regulate and ban stuff are driven by a dislike of the product itself. And a lot of the people who are calling for restrictions on alcohol marketing are ones who actually have a prohibitionist mindset and in some cases are actually, and, and openly in the name of transparency, temperance campaigners. And I think it's important that you know that before you uh, pursue, uh, pursue that route. So if you want to, to encourage the trends towards less alcohol-related harm, you want people to drink less but better. We're going to need marketing in order to achieve that. Well, the slippery slope is clearly real. There's no doubt about that. You know, the, the, the ban on so-called junk food advertising is in the obesity strategy, both in England and Scotland. The e-cigarette advertising has already been banned. You know, this is happening. It will move on ultimately to plain pack packaging unless the trajectory uh, changes. Uh, Labrooks, incidentally, are in favour of the, the, the uh, gambling advertising ban. Think, think about that for a moment. What does that tell you about what advertising does? Who benefits 
from advertising fans. Very often the market leaders. Uh, I, t- I did take a, a little bit of schadenfreude from Channel 4 recently when they complained about how much money they're going to lose from this junk food advertising ban because, of course, it was Jamie Oliver who's been pushing all this the whole time on Channel 4. They've been quite happy to let him have his piece, campaigning for this, campaigning for that, and then when this came around, the head of Channel 4 said, look, we agree with Jamie, we're very concerned about child obesity, we just don't feel this particular policy is, is the kind of thing the government should be looking at. I hope they'll reconsider that. You know, lay with a dog, get fleas. And finally, I'm going to do something very unusual for the IA and call for more regulation. There is... Uh, I mean, the advertising is, is, is actually quite heavily regulated. It's self-regulated, but it's effectively regulated. There is one area of advertising that isn't regulated at all, never has been. Political advertising. Never been, adver- never, never been regulated. They can say whatever they want during elections, same as politicians can libel people in the House of Commons and say things that we can't say out here. How about regulating that? Let's make sure that that's decent, honest, and truthful, like all other advertising has to be. <laughs> Thank you.